and I'm really excited to get into this new chapter as we start the new year, as we go through the book of Matthew, and how our small groups are going to be looking through the book of Matthew at the same time as I'm preaching. And I want to say something with that. Because a lot of people think, well, if the small groups are going through Matthew and Scotty's going to be preaching through Matthew, there's no need for me to be in the small group because we'll be hearing about it Sunday. No, you will not. Because while I'm coming from one part of Matthew chapter 1, our small groups are coming from another part. And, you know, guys, we got to, we got to understand this. The Bible is God's gift to us. It is a blessing that we're able to have it so we can see how God's worked in the lives of many other people. But it is also a a responsibility for everybody who is a believer to hold to the Bible, but not only that, but eat from the Bible daily. Because it's important for our growth as disciples, but it's also important for our guidance in everyday life. And the one thing that I love about the Bible is when we get to see these stories about how God uses what we may consider not an ideal situation and uses it for his purpose and his glory. We've seen this from Adam and Eve to Rahab to Ruth to even David. And these are real stories, real stories that we can use to help us grow in our faith. But one of my favorite stories of all of the book of Bible is the story of Gideon. Because the story of Gideon is an extremely unlikely story. In Judges chapter 12, uh, 6 and 7, and I'm going to go through this real quick. You don't have to turn there. But in Judges chapter 6 and 7, we see how God comes to this man named Gideon. And Gideon is raised up at an important time because all the Israelites are being surrounded by the Midianites. And Gideon is the one that God chose God chose to lead the armies to overcome the Midianites. And what's funny is if you read this from a perspective of like I read it, you see in verse 12 where God says to Gideon that the Lord is with you, go now mighty warrior. Well, Gideon didn't consider himself a mighty warrior here at all. And if you look at it from the NIV translation, I love how the NIV translation puts it because the NIV says that Gideon's response was, pardon me? Wait a minute, I'm a mighty warrior, pardon me. And he says to God, he says, but where are all the wondrous works that all of our ancestors have talked about, Lord? Where's all that been over the last couple of years to where the Midianites have been able to come and overtake us? And then God says, go in the strength you have and save Israel. And again, in verse 15, Gideon's response in the NIV is, pardon me? Excuse me? You want me to do what? You want me to go up against 135,000 Midianites with 32,000 Israelites? For those who like sports, that is a one in four chance of winning. And God says, no, I don't want you to go with 32,000. He says, okay. He says, narrow it down. So 22,000 of those individuals leave. 22,000 of those individuals leave, which leaves Gideon with an army of 10,000 against 135 Midianites, which again, for those who like sports, that is a one in 13 chance of winning. It's kind of like what Green Bay has of going to the Super Bowl right now. Very slim. 
But God says, no, that's not what I want from you. I want 300 of these men to go with you. 300 men against 135,000 Midianites. How is this going to be possible? Again, sports standards, that is a 1 in 450 a chance. 450 to 1 that they will win this battle. And that's what God tells Gideon to go into battle with. Now, do you understand where the pardon me comes in? Because I would be on the same case. I would be like, God, there is no way that we're going to do this. And then God tells them the plan, which is even crazier. God tells them that you're going to take these 300 men with 300 tea jugs, clay pots, I call it a tea jug, but 300 tea jugs and 300 torches. And you're going to light your torch and you're going to put this tea jug on top of it. And you're going to go down close to, the, uh, close to this encampment of where they are. And you are going to defeat these men. How in the world does anybody defeat anybody with tea jugs and torches? So when they get down there, they break the jugs, they yell out with a big exclamation. And the craziest thing takes place in that 135,000. They are absolutely confused to what's going on. And they actually start fighting each other. And before dawn comes, all 135,000 Midianites have killed each other. We love stories like this. We love the underdog stories. And you know what's crazy is I was talking to one of my friends, a pastor friend of mine, whose um, daughter has just went through war college. And in our United States War College, they teach some of their students, these students who are going to go be generals and captains and commanders in our military, they teach them about these battles. And they actually use this battle to teach the art of confusion in warfare to our people. Now, isn't that crazy? Our government will use the Bible to teach our commanding officers to overcome other nations, but we don't hold to it. Kind of makes you scratch your head, doesn't it? But there's stories like this all throughout God's word. And one of those stories is one that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the man that we all know as God, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. But I want to give a little bit of a pre-warning about this. Because I'm not just talking to you about a situation that goes against the odds. I'm also talking to you about a situation that if you, if you were to look at from a cultural and socially aspect, you would consider this to not be an ideal situation. I have to even be more careful because the last thing that I want to do or to say is to lead people that God works through and in our sin because that is not the case. But the story that we're going to see here in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, is actually something, if we step back and look at it without knowing what happens, it's one of those things that make you say, what? How did this come about? At the same time, we have to recognize this and come to the terms with the fact that God works in and through situations that all of us consider not to be ideal. 
So let's look at this situation, which is not ideally correct. But let's look and see what God has for us this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 say this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follow. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translates God with us. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary to be his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Pray with me. Father, this morning, we come to you, Lord, absolutely, totally thankful for just the ability to be here in your presence with your people this morning. Father, as we start this journey walking through Matthew, it is my prayer that we would see the who, how, when, what, and where's of discipleship. But not only that, Lord, that we would take all of these things that we are going to learn over the next uh, 28 weeks and really apply them to our lives to the point to where when people see us, they see you moving through us. Father, we know that we are absolutely powerless to do anything for your purpose and your glory without you. And we know that we need you on a daily basis. So this morning, Lord, as we examine this scripture, as we look at this, not only from the eyes of knowing what happened, but also taking a step back, Lord, to look at it from a place of total, total not sure how this is working out. I pray, God, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and heart and mind to understand what it is that your word has for us. Father, this morning, thank you for the blessing of your word. But thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your salvation, which comes through your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we humbly pray. Amen. Give me one second. So the way that we're going to look at this this morning will probably make some of you a little bit uncomfortable. It'll probably make you a little bit uneasy. Because the way we're going to try to look at this is we're going to try to look at this from a cultural and social way of thinking. Because when we look at this story, 
Every single one of us have probably heard this story hundreds of times. We know what took place. We know what come about. We know how God used this situation for his purpose and his glory. But we've got to understand this. The people that it was affecting at this time had no idea what was going on. And when we look at it from that perspective, when we look at it from a perspective of having no idea of what's going on, we can actually begin to appreciate some of the things that may have been happening in the background a little bit more. In verse 18, it says that Joseph was betrothed to Mary. For those who are not sure what the word betrothed means, it just simply means that he was engaged. Before they were officially married, it is revealed that Mary is with child. And get this, the baby isn't Joseph's. Let's just stop right there. We're looking at this. We know this story, but I want us to sit and think about some realities that would take place into people who do not know what's going on. If this were to happen in today's time, it's not as bad as it used to be. But there was a time to where this was considered absolutely unacceptable. Matter of fact, there was a time when people were absolutely shunned and turned away from church because of this. But there was a time even before that that this was even a little bit more harsh. When you look at this through the lenses of the law and Numbers and Deuteronomy and even Leviticus, you see this from a completely different perspective. Because notice that it said something about Joseph. It said that Joseph was a righteous man. And for us, that means, well, he did things right. But to the people of this time, it means that he held to the law. So what does the law say about this situation? If you have your, just take a note, take notes down on these two scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and Numbers chapter 5. They actually speak a lot about the physical intimacy between a man and a woman. And they have a lot to say about this. Now, parents with kids in here, I want, you to be, I want you to know I am going to be extremely PG on this. Do not be concerned about this. But at the same time, these were the standards that God put in place about the topic of sex. And if we look at it from Deuteronomy chapter 22, we see some things in there to where if a woman and a man get together who are not married or if they're married to somebody else or even betrothed to somebody else, there is a severe consequence that can come about because of the act of adultery. You know what it is? Death. We don't look at it that way today, do we? We do not look at it through the eyes of the law of what it says about this topic. Matter of fact, even in today's time, we've dumbed this down even more to the fact that sex is just something that is going to take place. Where did we come to this? Where did we come to this point? That socially, 
and culturally that we have taken what God says is right about the topic of sex and made it so perverse. When we were going through the marriage class, I, I liked hearing Brian Mashburn talk about sex. I've had, I got that and wrote down here and I've been waiting to say that all morning. But Brian made some points about the topic that are very true. Sex is not a bad thing. You can say it. You can talk about it. When you are talking about it in the context of a married man and woman, it is a good gift of God. But at the same time, our culture for a long time in the church was you don't talk about that. Matter of fact, the whole topic of it was so taboo that you never heard the conversation about sex in the, from a pulpit. I remember not too long ago, we had a lady, she got offended because we were listening to a um, Christian comedian. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was Mark Lowry. I believe so. But Mark Lowry was talking about sex. And she come over, we were over in the fellowship hall, and she come over and she said, I can't believe y'all are watching that. What are you talking about? She said, they're talking about sex. I said, okay. She said, we don't talk about that. And it just hit me. I was like, have you ever read God's word? Especially in the genealogy where it says, such and such begot such and such. Do you know how such and such begot such and such? <laughs> do you know how that happens? I mean, do I need to go and have this conversation? Now, this was an older woman, much older woman. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm about to explain sex to a 68-year-old woman. What in the world? But it is not a bad thing when it is held in context with that. A little side note on that, because I know parents, it is hard to talk about this conversation with your children. And a lot of us are wondering, when do we have that conversation with our children? And I'm going to tell you, having second graders has been an eye-opening experience. I have realized that this conversation is going to come about a lot sooner than what I anticipated it to. Why? Because culturally and socially, it's not a big deal anymore. It's not a big deal anymore at all. But we should make it a big deal. We should make it a huge deal. Because what we don't see also in Numbers chapter 5 and also Deuteronomy chapter 22 is that the act of physical intimacy between a man and a woman is what consummates a marriage. Think about that for a minute. This is not what consummates a marriage. The vows that you say, will you, won't you, do you, don't you, are not what consummates a marriage. Not even that kiss at the end where the officiate says, for all the power that's invested in me, I now pronounce you man and wife. That is not what consummates marriage. The act of consummating a marriage from the eyes of the law is the act of sex. This 
is something we really got to take more serious, people. This is something that we need to be speaking to our children, to our grandchildren. Because you know what? There's going to be a day where they're going to have to stand before God. And they will have to answer for what they've done. Praise God for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which washes away those sins. But at the same time, if we're not speaking the truth, cultural and social aspects are going to speak lies. Which do you want your children to hear? Because they're going to hear them. And it's funny because I've heard, had so, so many families, that's why we homeschool our kids. I'm nothing against homeschooling your kids. But unless you put your kids in a bubble and don't let them associate with their cousins, with their next door neighbors, or with anybody else their age, I promise you this, by the time they are eight years old, they will hear something that leads to the topic of sex. And if we don't tell them, they're going to hear about it from somebody else. Had another parent say to me one time, well, my kids learned about it from, from the farm. <laughs> Man, that's interesting. And I just looked at her, I said, how many roosters do you have? She said, I only got one. We can only have one rooster. You can't have more than one rooster. I said, okay, how many chickens do you have? Oh, we got about 20. I said, do you want them to learn about sex from that standpoint? Think about that for a minute. We don't want them to learn from the farm. We don't want them to learn from culture. We don't want them to learn from their 12-year-old cousin. What do we want them to learn from? From what God's Word says about the topic. And if God's Word speaks good about the topic, shame on us for making it something taboo that we don't talk about. Man. All right, let's jump ship. Joseph is a righteous man who holds to the law, who knows the law, and keeps it close to his heart. Is betrothed to a young woman. Her name is Mary. She finds out this young woman is pregnant. If he were a truly devout, righteous man, the story would stop. Here. But it goes on to say something a little bit more. And this is something that we really need to take hold of. It says that not only was he a righteous man, but not wanting to disgrace her, he planned to send her away secretly. You know, my mind works a lot different from everybody else's, and I get that. But when I see this man who holds a high degree to the law, do something like this. That speaks volumes to me about this man. Because that shows me that not only was he a righteous man, but he was also a compassionate man. Like that, he could have brought Mary before the Sanhedrin, before the council, and after what the law says, we know what would most likely take place. He could have handled it according to Deuteronomy chapter 5, to where she is considered to be a curse and never to be allowed 
into the temple practices or anything like that. But at the same time, we know that this could have been a very bad situation. Yet, he has compassion. And this is something that I believe a lot of us miss about Joseph. Because compassion is the quality and the act of loving someone in spite of the situations. One thing you've got to say about this. Joseph had to truly love Mary. Because if he had allowed his fleshly side, which all of us have a tendency of doing, rise up in him, we wouldn't be reading this. He had compassion on her because he saw something more than just a bad situation. He saw a woman. And not only that, a woman with a child. Over the last couple years, we've really been transitioning about how we do missions here. One of the missions that we try to partner with quite often um, is our Women's Enrichment Center. And recently I was talking to one of the caseworkers that was there. And I was asking her what did she see some of their greatest needs were. And one of the things that she said really shocked me because I thought they'd say formula, I thought they'd say diapers. And by the way, thank you for your generosity because of what you do and giving to missions beyond and above your gifts and offerings. We were able to buy a lot, well, we bought a heavy price tag worth of diapers and formula, but when you look at it on the table, it doesn't look like a lot. But she said the one thing that they need more than anything is compassionate people. What? Why? Why is it that we need compassionate people? Because even though things have changed when it comes to the way we view sex and the way we view all these things, one thing that has not changed is the way that we look at people who fall short and their situation goes beyond what they intended it to go. You know, and I've heard this said a lot, but a baby is not a mistake. Because the last time I checked from this, it says that God is the one who fashions that child in the mother's womb. So with that being said, a child is not a mistake. But at the same time, children are brought into this world into some situations that we would not consider ideal. And when these situations happen, the main thing that we need to be showing these people is not how they did wrong, but how we love them in spite of their situation. Man, I can't imagine. And I've been trying to put myself in Mary's place and in some of the places of these women who go to the Women's Enrichment Center, but I can't imagine walking through the doors of that place 
knowing that there's a good chance that somebody's going to judge me. Knowing that there's a good chance that somebody's going to look down on me. Or knowing the chance that somebody is going to look more at my failure than the opportunity that was right before them. And you know, as we get ready to celebrate Nationally Sanctity of Life Sunday, when I look at it through the lenses of that lady, and I look at that shame, and I look at that guilt, and I look at the lack of people having compassion for that individual, I'm not saying I condone it, but I can almost understand why the topic of abortion might even come up. The way to fix a problem is to erase it. The way to fix a situation is to do away with it. That's our social and our cultural mindset. And I am so thankful that Joseph didn't hold to his cultural and social mindset. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. Because all of us have these situations in our life. These hard times when we went through some very difficult situations to where we sit there and said, just like Gideon, God, where's all the wondrous works? But we never could see him move until we went through that situation fully. Sometimes I think we need to be a little bit more compassionate and patient and a lot less quicker to pass judgment. No, God doesn't work in sin. But the shed blood of Jesus Christ does erase it. Mary and Joseph's situation was not a situation of sin. It says that Joseph decided to put her away privately. And something that I just want to put, just a little point I want to put out there. Because a lot of people have said this, and I've even probably said this. Is that Joseph divorced his wife privately. She was not his wife yet. The scripture is clear about that. Joseph's intent was not to divorce his wife. His intent was to break off the engagement. But then an angel of the Lord come and said this. And listen to it. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save the people from their sins. And it goes on to say, And Joseph awoke from his sleep. And, as, as, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And took Mary as his wife. But listen to this next point. 
but kept her as a virgin until she had gave birth. What was the act that consummates a marriage? Sex. What did not happen between Joseph and Mary until after Jesus was born? Sex. Why? Because the prophet said this, Behold, the virgin will bear a child and shall bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. We know this part of the story. So when we read this story, we don't look at it from the cultural and social shock of what could have been taking place at that time. But at the same time, there's a lot for us to learn from looking at this from the eyes of these people who were in this situation at this place. And the first thing that we've got to learn is that God uses situations that are not ideal to bring about his perfect purpose. This is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in the middle of God's story of redemptive grace for our lives. Because every single one of us are in need of redemption from the things that we've done. Every single one of us have failed. Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And when we're looking at a lost and dying world around us, not only do we need to be embracing God's redemptive grace, but we need to be showing God's redemptive grace. Because God's redemptive grace is the story of God's compassion on people who did not deserve it. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve Jesus coming and taking our sin and dying for those sins. We don't deserve the fact that he took the punishment that we were due and put it on himself. We deserve none of it. But yet when he came, Emmanuel, God with us, he came not just sending a love letter, he came to tell us himself that he loved us so much that he was not willing to allow our situation that was not ideal to interfere with his perfect purpose. And that's the same grace that we've got to be showing to others. We must have this same compassion for others. But there's someone else that we should have this compassion for too. And this is where it gets tough. Because the person that we should have this compassion for can often be our biggest enemies. The person that we need to have this compassion for is the only person who can stop us from being a part of what God wants to be done. This person that we need to have this same compassion for, they're normally your biggest critic. And this person that you need to have compassion for is the same person, the same flesh and blood that you saw when you looked in the mirror this morning. The person that a disciple needs to have compassion for just like anybody else is themselves. Look around you. Seriously, look around you. It's okay. Look all the way around you. 
For those who can pull it out, do a 360. Throw your head around back. No, don't do that. That'll really freak some people out. And that'll draw into the sermon. All of us are the same. Every single one of us are the same. Every single one of us struggle, sin, and fail daily. Every single one of us have a high standard that we expect ourselves to live by. And every night, every single one of us go to bed disappointed. Why? Well, today was it ideal. Today was it perfect. Today was it what I intended it to be. Today, I did not perform like I feel like I should have performed. But this is where the beauty of the gospel comes in. Because the beauty of the gospel is not, once you get saved, you, it's up to you to keep it. But that's the mindset that we have. We battle day in and day out like it is dependent on our actions and our lives to keep our salvation. But brothers and sisters, you've got to understand this as a disciple of Christ. Your salvation is sealed. John 10 says that once God has you in your hands, in his hands, that nobody can snatch you out of it. And I heard it, I've heard it, I've heard it, I've heard it. Yeah, but I can pull myself out of that. When you say I can pull myself out of that, you think you're somebody. And the Bible said nobody. And you're not somebody who can do that. And why am I saying this? I'm not saying this to say, hey, just keep on sinning. Just keep on doing life as you're doing it. Live it to the fullest. Do whatever you want to do. Do like, do like Solomon. Don't allow anything that will bring you pleasure to stop. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is give yourself a break. Relax. Show yourself the same grace that God came to show you. Because you want to know what? When it comes to being a true disciple of Christ, the first thing you have to do is you have to die to yourself and acknowledge his death, burial, and resurrection for the redemption of your sin. But you know what some of us haven't died to? We haven't died to the criticism. We haven't died to the shame. We haven't died to the guilt. We haven't died to the fact of knowing that we can't do perfect. And this is where many people stop when it comes to being a disciple of Christ. If I can't be perfect, what's the point in trying? If I can't be perfect, I'm going to be like one of those hypocrites that everybody talks about in church. We're all hypocrites, okay? If somebody says something to you, ask them to join the rest of the hypocrites. Come on in. We got room. 
But the gospel is not about you being enough. The gospel is about Jesus being enough. And that's where discipleship really starts. When you know that every day Jesus is enough for you to do what he has for your life, that's how you keep moving forward. Because the minute you think that it is dependent on you, your discipleship stops. It's not about you. It's not about you holding to a standard. It's about you holding to a man who came in flesh and blood, who was God himself, who died for your sins, who showed compassion on you when you didn't deserve it. Why can't we do the same to ourselves? Father, Not only have I been looking at the man in the mirror, I've been preaching to the man in the mirror this morning. Because you know the same struggles that I have. When I look at the things in my past, when I look at the situations that I've been in, and I say to myself, those aren't ideal. There's no way that God can use those situations. And that's why this morning, Lord, I'm thankful for your word that has shown me that you've used situations beyond what I would even consider my own lifespan. And you've used them even more for your purpose and your glory. But this morning, Lord, I pray that everybody in the sound of my voice will embrace this. That your grace, it's enough. It's all we need. As we battle ourselves, it's all we need. As we battle our sin, it's all we need. As we battle our criticisms, it's all we need. As we battle this world, it's all we need. And as we fight these wars, Lord, that continually go on inside of ourselves, help us to remember, it's all we need. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Hey guys, Pastor Scotty Gerard here, and I just wanted to say thank you for joining us today. We really hope that this has been a resource that's helped you grow in your purpose for God, but also grow in His glory. We also want to extend an invitation to you to join us here in person at Harmony Grove. We are located at 1008 Town Creek School Road in Blairsville, Georgia. We would love for you to come be a part of our service, to be a part of our small groups. If you have children, we have children's classes on Wednesday night and on Sunday morning. And all this information can be found on our website. We'd also like to continue help you in your growth with Christ. If you have a question, maybe a prayer request, or just need to talk to somebody, you can contact us in the emails below in the description, or you can also contact us through our app and through our website, which are also found in the description below. Again, we hope this has been a blessing to you because we know that you joining us today has been a great blessing to us. Thank you so much. God bless.